Well, it's that time. It's time to jump into the Word of God together, and I'm going to do you a favor right from the beginning here, okay? I'm going to tell you the point of the sermon right up front. So if you're a note taker, you're going to want to write this down. When you get to your grace group this week and they go, so what was the sermon about? You are going to have a cheat sheet. You're going to have the answer. Here it is. Are you ready? Here's the point. God is doing something. Don't miss it. God is doing something. Don't miss it. That's what this sermon is going to be about. And I'm hoping that by the end of our time together in the Word, you're going to have a sense of what God is doing and how you can make sure that you don't miss it. Well, let's start with this. Uh, right there in your house, in your living room, I want you to raise your hand if you love roller coasters. Raise your hand if you love roller coasters. All right, now put those hands down. Raise your hand if you hate roller coasters. So you know what I have discovered? Roller coasters are one of those things that nobody is mediocre about. You either love roller coasters or you hate roller coasters. Well, I have news for you. I don't know if you love roller coaster rides or hate roller coaster rides, but either way, it doesn't matter because you are on a roller coaster ride. <laughs> Your life is a roller coaster ride. I want to illustrate this for you. Let's just imagine, okay, that that you lived most of your life in the 20th century. Let's imagine that you were born in 1900. Now, I know you're going to have to imagine that. Unless you're Jim Thompson, you're going to have to imagine that. But imagine you were born in 1900, okay? Let's just think about what happens in your life if you're born at the beginning of the 20th century. On your 14th birthday... World War I breaks out, only it's not called World War I, it's called the Great War, it's called the War to End All Wars, because you knew that nobody is going to ever have a war like this again. This is going to be the last war, and everything depends upon it. And in this War to End All Wars, 22 million people are killed. And yet, when it's time for the war to end, the soldiers come home to the United States around your 18th birthday. Okay, now you're 18 years old. The Great War is ending. And when the soldiers come back, they bring something with them. It's called the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu, the great epidemic of the 20th century. And the Spanish flu kills 50 million people in two years. 50 million people in two years. So 22 million people killed in the war, twice that many killed in the two years after the war due to the Spanish flu. Now it's your 29th birthday. And what happens when you're 29? The stock market crashes. And the stock market crashes and leads us into a depression, not just in the United States, but worldwide. And the entire world is in a financial depression. And that goes on for about 10 years because World War II begins in 1939 when you're about 39 years old. And, and America is fully involved by 1941. So, and in the years of World War II, 75 million people are killed in the war. That is more than World War I and the Spanish flu combined. By age 50, the Korean War starts. When you're 55... The Vietnam War breaks out and lasts for 20 long years, destroying countless lives and essentially ripping our nation apart at the core. And now at the end of, world, uh, end of Vietnam, you're 75 years old and you get sick and you die. Well, wasn't that pleasant? 
<laughs> That's life. That was your life, 1900 to 1975. But think about it. That's not a full description of your life. Those are just some of the big events, some of the negative events that happened during your life. But it doesn't even scratch the surface of what your life was about. Somewhere in that life, you graduated high school. Somewhere in that life, maybe you got married. Somewhere in that life, you had children. Somewhere in that life, you started a business. Somewhere in that life, you had big celebrations. Somewhere in that life, your children got married. Somewhere in that life, you had grandchildren. Somewhere in that life, you retired from your career and got to enjoy things. There, all of these things happen in life. There's so much more to life than just those dips that come on the roller coaster. There's family, there's friendships, there's your faith, your contribution to society, the legacy that you leave behind by the people that you impact. Folks, we are on a roller coaster ride, just like everyone who went before us. But the circumstances of our lives don't define us. God does. So today I want us to do a flyover of several years in the life of a great man of God and see what we can learn from his journey that maybe applies to our journey as well. So I want you to take your Bibles and find the book of 1 Kings. It's in the Old Testament, in the early part of the Old Testament. And it's, I don't know, maybe eight books in, something like that. And so find 1 Kings and turn to chapter 16 with me, if you will. Um, and while you're doing that, let me just sort of introduce this for you. Because the books of Kings basically are a chronicle of the kings of Israel and Judah. And they're the people who ruled over the people of God during all these years. And essentially, it's a story of a bunch of complete knuckleheads. These kings constantly turn to sin. They constantly lead the people of God away from God. And then every once in a while, God drops a righteous man into the king, into the throne. And that man serves as king. And the people come back to God for a short period. And then a new king comes and the people go back to their old pagan ways. And this is the story that we see repeated again and again in First and Second Kings. And as we get to 1 Kings chapter 16, I just want to read this with you. We're going to start in verse 29 of 1 Kings 16. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king of Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That is saying something. All these wicked kings, this guy was the most evil one that had ever been on the throne in Israel. Verse 31, it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So he decides he's going to marry this woman so that he can have a, uh, uh, a joining of the forces with the Sidonians. And so he marries this woman, Jezebel. Dum, dum, dum. You know Jezebel, right? How many of you named your daughter Jezebel? Right, nobody. 
In 2,800 years, nobody has named their daughter Jezebel, right? After 2,800 years, it's still like one of the worst things you could call a woman to say she's a Jezebel. Well, this woman Jezebel sets the standard for all the Jezebels to come in the history of the world. So chapter 17 begins with a prophet named Elijah who is sent to confront Ahab and his wife Jezebel about their sin. Pick it up in verse 1, chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. In other words, God sends uh, Elijah to Ahab and Jezebel to say this, I've been praying and I've asked God not to let it rain until this nation faces repentance. And so God has told me that it's not going to rain again in the land of Israel until I say so. And that begins a long three-year period where not a drop of rain falls in Israel. And you can imagine what that's like. That is a totally agrarian society. The plants uh, can't grow, therefore the animals die, therefore the people are starving. The wells are at the bottom and dirty water is coming up. The brooks have dried up. The rivers have dried up. That's what they're going through as a nation. And God sends um, Elijah away into the wilderness and he lives by this brook called Cherith, where he's able to get water. And God provides for him there. It's an amazing story. I encourage you to read all of this on your own this week. But the country is facing famine and everybody knows it's because of Elijah's prayer. And so he is the most hated man in the whole country. Now, as you, as you go through chapter 17, you run into some great stories, right? It's in chapter 17 that you find out that God sends um, Elijah to the widow and provides the, the jar of oil and flour that never runs out. You see the miracle where Elijah prays for the widow's son who has died and raises him from the dead. Again, please read this stuff on your own. These are some of the most incredible stories in the Old Testament. But when three years have passed, without a drop of rain, God sends Elijah back to Ahab and Jezebel. And we're going to pick that up in 1 Kings chapter 18. See how fast I'm going? Amazing, right? 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 17. It's been three years. Elijah's the most hated man in Israel, and the king has been searching for him all this time so he could make him pay. Verse 17. God sends Ahab back. It sends Elijah back to Ahab. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. See, these people are supported by Jezebel, 450 priests or prophets who basically are running this pagan religion of the worship of Baal, who is the god of weather, right? So thunder, lightning, and all that kind of stuff, that's Baal. And then the Asherah, that's, they're, they're following this goddess Ashereth, who is, the, who is the goddess of sexuality, and so uh, there's 450 prophets for Baal, 400 prophets for Ashereth. And, and Elijah essentially 
challenges them. Jezebel is the one who is supporting them. They're being paid from the king's treasury, right? They eat at Jezebel's table. And so this leads to one of the most significant moments in Israel's history. Look at verse 20 with me. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. So all the people of the nation are gathered at the foot of the mountain. There is Elijah, the prophets, uh, the satanic false prophets of Baal and Ashereth are there. And Elijah challenges the people. And this leads to the battle of the prophets. And essentially Elijah says this, listen, let's set up a couple of altars. You set up an altar to your God. I'll set up an altar to my God. We will uh, put uh, the, the, the pieces of meat onto the altar and whichever God sends fire down from heaven to, to consume the offering on the altar, that is the one true God. And we'll agree right now that we're all going to worship that God. And they essentially shake on it, and that's the plan. And I love this. In verse 26, if you pick it up in verse 26, it says, Then they took the ox which was given them, this is the prophets of Baal, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they made. They're crying out to their God. They figure they've got the advantage. They worship the weather God. He controls lightning. He's just going to send a lightning bolt down, and it's all going to be over. And they keep doing all these things, trying to get their God to answer them. But there's no voice and no answer. And then the greatest thing happens. Verse 27 is when Elijah starts talking trash. I love this. This is so great. Look what he says. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice. For he's a God, either he's occupied or gone aside or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. I totally love this. He is so mocking them and he's just talking trash. And literally, if you read this in the Hebrew, basically he says, maybe he's busy. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Literally, maybe he's sitting on the toilet. That's what it says. Your God is probably in the bathroom. Or maybe he's taking a nap. If you cry out louder, maybe he'll answer you. And Elijah's just mocking them. And they begin to cut themselves. And the blood is pouring forth as a sacrifice to Baal. And still, nothing happens. And now it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah goes and sets the meat on his altar... And then he orders that water be poured over the meat and over the altar and into the rocks. Now understand this. It's the greatest famine they've ever seen. Water is the most precious thing they have. And he's just pouring it out right in front of everybody. And then he orders that it be done again. And then he orders that it be done again so that, that his offering is just sort of swimming, floating in the water. And he's asking God to consume this by fire. And then God, uh, Elijah prays. And God sends fire from heaven and, and destroys and laps up all the water and takes up the offering and destroys the altar and everything is burnt with fire. God wins. And 850 satanic prophets are put to death by the people right there on that day. This is the greatest religious turnaround in the nation's history. And then Elijah prays. 
And as he prays, they look on the horizon and there's a cloud and then another one and then darker clouds. And before long, it's starting to rain. Hooray, right? Happy days are here again. God has won. The rain is back. It's all perfect. It's all great. But then look at chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Jezebel is not happy. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm not better than my father's. Man, what a roller coaster. Elijah has just had the greatest experience of his life. The greatest victory, God showing himself strong. He's just seen God do incredible things. He's seen his enemies destroyed. People of Israel are turning back to God. This is the best moment in Elijah's life. And all it takes is one word from one crazy woman. And he is running for his life and depressed to the point of being suicidal. How many of you know that you could be riding high with God and all it takes is one difficult person to bring you crashing down. That's exactly what Elijah was experiencing. This guy is depressed. And what do people do when they're depressed? They sleep, right? Look at verse 5. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Sometimes all you need is a meal and a nap. Can I get an amen? All right. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is the same place that Moses went to. This angel appears. Wouldn't you love to have a cake angel? You're struggling, you're, you're having a hard time, you're feeling depressed, and pooey, an angel arrives and brings you cake. That is exactly what I, I so wish I had a cake angel. If I had a cake angel, I would be 10 times as fat as I am. But anyway, I digress. So they get this superfood. The angel brings them these bread cakes. The angel brings him water. He has these two meals. And on the strength of those two heavenly meals, he goes six weeks without food. And he ends up at Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, and literally comes to what we think is the same exact place where Moses went before God and hid himself in the cleft of the rock. And now we find Elijah hiding himself in that cave in the cleft of the rock. And after 40 days of travel, we find him sulking in a cave. And so how do you know he was sulking? From the conversation that happens next, look at verses 9 and 10. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the Son of Israel, have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets by the sword, and I alone am left, and now they seek my life to take it away. Wah, wah, wah. He's just whining, right? Can't you just picture Elijah? He's got his thumb in his mouth. He's clinging to his blankie. And he's talking about how terrible it is. He's the only one left. There's nobody with him. And God won't do what he wants him to do. Nothing ever goes right for me. Where were you when I needed you, God? What this guy needs is some perspective. What this guy needs is some new hope. And that's exactly what God gives him. Look at verse 11. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by and a great and strong wind was rending the mountain and breaking in pieces the rocks but, uh, before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his uh, mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, Why are you, what are you doing here, Elijah? And again, more whining. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the Son of Israel, have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I load them left, and now they seek my life to take it away. <sighs> I think it's pretty clear now what Elijah is feeling. But now it's time for the Lord to speak. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. It shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehel, shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees who have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, God says, dude, get over yourself. It's not all about you. I am still at work, God says. I'm still going to accomplish my will. There is still a future and a hope. I got this. So chill, Elijah. And he does, you know. God, he's got this. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't lost sight of you. And he has not finished with you yet. Sometimes we all need a little reminder that on this roller coaster called life, those circumstances change and things happen that are beyond our control. Nothing is beyond God's control. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. You know, I think the best thing about roller coasters is that when you get on and you go into that first dip, it feels like you're going to die. You get this exhilaration, your heart races and your, your um, adrenaline pumps and it feels like you're going to die, but you can laugh and rejoice because inside you know it's safe. Inside you know you're going to be okay. And so you can lift your hands even while you're on the roller coaster. Church, we Christians need at this time to be lifting our hands to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yes, we are on a roller coaster. But let me just remind you of something. God is still on his throne. He's not going to leave you. 
<laughs> he is not going to change. He's working, whether you can see him working or not. He's with you during times of triumph and times of tragedy. He's not on vacation. He's not under quarantine. He's not in the bathroom. Our God is with you. So take a deep breath. Stop whining, Christian. And listen for that still small voice. It's the voice of God. Don't be afraid to draw near to him. Lift your hands and enjoy the ride. Because he's got this. And God is not finished with you yet. Let's pray. God, we just want to thank you that it's not just our past that is in your hands. And it's not even just our present that is in your hands. But even our future is in your all capable hands. And so God, give us not only resilience and strength to endure the downtimes, but give us the faith to lift our hands and praise to you no matter what the roller coaster is doing. May you be honored. May you be glorified. May we remember it's not about us. It's all about you. And you've got this. We thank you for your faithfulness. Exhibit your power in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.